reading through what in, in that series, and 30% of them are Wolverine's origin story. Like, every couple of films would come back to say, oh, Wolverine's the best, like, let's just tell his origin story again. Or, I, I haven't worked out the percentages, but a lot of the Batman films that have been made focus on how Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, um, or how Superman becomes Superman. Um, the origin stories are, are sort of retold and over and over again, um, and because they explain how that person, how that character, has become who they are. Now, we have origin stories ourselves. There'll be little stories, um, little anecdotes that you tell regularly about yourself because they explain something um, about who you are. Um, I don't know why this one came to mind when I was writing this down, but uh, there's a classic one in uh, Jim's family that uh, one year, one of his brothers had been really naughty in the run-up to Christmas, and his parents said, look, if you're naughty, you're just going to get a sack of rubbish on Christmas morning. Uh, Santa's not going to bring any presents. And he was really naughty, so they did put a sack of rubbish out for him. And that's like a classic story that I've heard uh, Jim tell a lot of times uh, to different people and, and Fran retelling it. And it's just... I mean, it's only a little thing, but it's just a story that gets retold, explains something about um, the, the family history there. Um, I was thinking for myself, like for, for me and Lisa, uh, we often tell our boys um, about our sort of journey through infertility before having them, because it feels like for them to understand like what our family is, you need to have known what's gone before it. And that's a story we've told a lot of times. Um, or uh, I feel like I've told a lot of times like how I came to be a Christian and I'm always going back to the, the, the fact of like I grew up in church but I knew a lot about God but I didn't know God and the sort of series of events that uh, took place that God used to, to get me attention onto him. There'd be various little stories, some small, some like major ones uh, that you tell to people um, regularly because they help to explain who you are. Now, Exodus is the origin story for the Israelite people, for God's people. Yes, there is a book before it called Genesis, which is pretty much literally the word origin. And there's things that they told from there. But the Exodus story is the thing um, that they told over and over again to explain who they were. Um, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, like however you want to define that group of God's people, whatever name you want to give them, this is a story that they look back to, the story like described in the first sort of um, third of this book, um, that's what they use to define, like, this is who we are. I was listening, uh, as you know, because I say it every time I get up here, I listen to a podcast saying that, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of the podcasts that I've really been enjoying is um, a podcast called The Rest is History with uh, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, and they go through different historical things. Some, one of them is an expert in sort of like ancient history, the other one relatively modern history, and they sort of alternate, and it's just like fascinating. They did one on the Falklands War, war that I just found absolutely fascinating. Anyway, they did one recently on um, the Roman destruction of the, the Jewish temple, and um, they were just talking about the Jewish people, and Tom Holland, who um, he's a historian, he's not a Christian, uh, but he'd said the reason why the Jews have been able to maintain this sort of um, like clearly defined identity as a people, despite years of sort of persecution from different places, like whether it's the Romans or whether it's the Nazis, like there's been loads of uh, persecution. They've often been spread, like dispersed from like the, the land. How have they managed to hold on to this distinct identity as Jews? And he was saying it's because they've got these shared stories that they just tell over and over again. And they're all aware, if you're grown up Jewish, you know exactly like, what it means to be a Jewish person. Um, what, like what the nation represents, what the people are. They just tell it over and over again. 
ex- the Exodus stories told over and over again. The first, like probably the first couple of songs that are described in the Bible are about the Exodus. And when you get up to the Psalms, there's loads of Psalms that refer back to the Exodus. The Bible's constantly referring um, to when they describe God as like, it's God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. That's the Exodus. And then there's a, the Passover meal. So every year, um, the uh, Jews from, from the time of the Exodus, we'll read in a few weeks about when this gets set up, um, up until today, every year when they have this Passover meal, there's set things that they'll do. They'll eat certain foods, there's certain little sort of speeches that people will give, and then the youngest person present at the meal has to ask a particular question, and the oldest person at the meal gives them an answer. And it basically retells these events. They've been doing that every year since this book, to, that'll, happen, that'll have happened a couple of months ago and it'll happen again next year. It's still going on now. Jesus would have grew up doing that every year with his family. There'll have been a time where he was the youngest at the table and he had to ask, why is this night different to every other night? And then the oldest person at the, the family starts to tell this story. It's fundamental. What's the, the story described in this book is just fundamental uh, to who they are as a people. It's their origin story. Um, Exodus means bringing out. It's a story of God bringing them out of slavery. As I said, they, they started telling this story as soon as it happened. They're retelling it, they're retelling it. Through to Jesus growing up, hearing and then retelling that story himself. And then people are still telling it today. It's a powerful story. It's had a massive impact on many, many people. So I'm quite excited to, to get into this book. Um, we're going to be going through the first 15 chapters of it um, before we take a break from it. That's going to take us through uh, most of the summer. Uh, so if you uh, want to read ahead or you want to just read a few chapters of it, I'd encourage you to read through it, um, especially these first 15 chapters that we're going to be looking at. Um, it's a gripping story. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, even if you are familiar with it, um, you'll, you'll notice things that you, you'd forgotten or you hadn't noticed before. So I'd encourage you to uh, be reading it yourself. Let's uh, read through the first chapter um, and we'll see um, what we think about that. It starts by saying, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Now you'll notice we've taken some of those names amongst children in Grace Church. So if you're intending to have kids in the future, Zebulun's still left, so is Issachar. So you've you've got a few from the list. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now this feels like it's sort of jumped in in amongst the story that's already going on, and that is what's happened. This is continuing where the story leaves off in the book of Genesis. So just to, this is um, reminding you of when the people went, when the Israelites went into um, Egypt, Um, let's just recap how they got there. So in in Genesis 12, you've got God choosing a person called Abraham, and he gives him a promise. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Um, I'm going to give you um, so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. You and your descendants are going to be blessed by God so that you can be a blessing to other people. And that's really the start of this nation, the choice of Abraham. Um, He asks Abraham to leave his his family and where he's living. He says, I'm going to make you into this uh, mighty nation. This nation that's going to be blessed in order to show what I'm like to other nations. 
Now, it mentions here about uh, Jacob's family going through, and Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And at one point during his life, uh, God renames him Israel. So that's where the, the, the sort of idea of Israelites comes from. They are the descendants of Israel. So Israel is Jacob. They are the same person. And Jacob had 12 sons. And there's a classic story that you may be familiar with, that one of those sons, Joseph, um, was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt. And then there's all sorts of things happen to Joseph. You can read it in the back end of, of Genesis. Uh, but he ends up through like a long and, and winding path being a significant leader in Egypt who helps him to prepare for a famine that's going to affect not just Egypt, but the, the world around Egypt as well. And so it comes to, to happen that his brothers end up having to come before him begging for food. They don't know it's him. They've just had to come to Egypt because they've heard you can get food there. Um, and they don't have any. And again, I'm, I'm cutting out loads of interesting stuff, but that ends up in a, a reconciliation of, of Joseph and his family. And so then his family all moved to Egypt, and that's what it's describing there. So it's Jacob, the rest of his sons, it says Joseph's already there, and their family. So they said there's about 70 people in all um, moved to, to Egypt. Now, this then sort of skips ahead, and it says that first generation, you know, all, all of those people named Reuben, Simeon, all of those, uh, they died, but obviously the families kept multiplying, and it says that uh, they, they were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is God's blessing on them. This is exactly the blessing that God had said, um, promised to Abraham. Even before that, he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. That's what's happening here. He gives a similar promise to Abraham that his descendants are going to be fruitful and multiply. And here we see it happening. You know, there was a famine that nearly sort of wiped them out. But here they've ended up in Egypt and they started off with 70 of them. And now there's loads of them. They're just being fruitful and multiplying. God's blessings happening. So we'll keep reading in verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Israelites came to dread, sorry, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So when Joseph's family, Jacob's family, like when they move, they can move there because the Pharaoh is favorable towards Joseph. Um, he's interpreted uh, Pharaoh's dreams. He's helped them come up with a plan to survive this famine. He's an influential person. He's well thought of by Pharaoh. But we're now looking a few generations down from that, whereas the, the Pharaoh, the king, where it, says, it sometimes says king here, sometimes says Pharaoh, that's the same person. Uh, the Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And this Pharaoh doesn't know anything about Joseph. He does know that there's all these people who are his descendants there, and they're getting too many. He's now becoming fearful. Think, hang on, like, what if they turn against us? Or what if they join with our enemies and, and, and like, fight against us? He's starting to get worried about these people. And so he comes up with a solution, which is we're going to enslave them. 
And so that's what they do. Uh, they make them slaves. Up to this point, presumably they hadn't been. They'd just been sort of um, working and, and farming and, and doing whatever they, they were doing. Now they are slaves. And so that seems like it's going to shut down God's plan. Except straight away in verse 12, it says, The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Pharaoh was trying to clamp down on them by oppressing them. But actually, the opposite's happening. They're multiplying and spreading even more. Trying to enslave God's people is not going to work. Trying to suppress God's work is never successful. But Pharaoh continues to go down that road. Um, he doesn't give up on that idea yet. He becomes more ruthless in the slavery. It's not working, so then he comes up with another plan. Verse 15, we'll keep reading. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, who, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that, baby is, that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he's tried slavery. The next part of his plan is more intense. And he instructs these midwives to kill the baby boys. He's happy to let the girls live. He's trying to limit the potential strength of the nation by killing off the baby boys. And the midwives disobey him. They don't, they don't do it. And I think this is a great example of something. I said, well, should we obey, like, instructions from government or higher powers or whatever the bible says yes but not if it clearly contradicts something that god says so in general we follow laws and we follow instructions from the the government or police or whatever but if we're being instructed to clearly contradict something that god would want us to do then we should follow the example of these midwives it's a pretty risky maneuver and not obey now, I was uh, reading this with um, Timothy and Zeke a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh, what stood out to you from it? And the first thing they said was these midwives, because oh, they lied to, to Pharaoh. And it's actually like a, a, a bit of a debate here between different people who, who study this sort of thing. Did they lie or not? And therefore, was it all right for them to lie? It's unclear. It may be that they just disobeyed him and then they made up this story about, or oh, they give birth too quick, like we couldn't get there. It may be that that is the truth and maybe they just sort of slowly went along so that the babies were born first, so they could tell the story. Maybe they engineered this or maybe they're just telling a certain version of events. We don't know for certain. But again, I think this comes under the category of when there's something that's clearly against God's will, then we shouldn't do it. Now, you get to this classic thing of like, should you ever lie? Well, what if you're in uh, Germany and you're hiding Jews in your basement and a Nazi officer is saying, have you got Jews in your basement? Should you lie? I think you should lie in that situation. Now, I'm not saying that, that other people might come to a different conclusion than that. And maybe you should try and avoid lying to do it or whatever. But that is a clear-cut situation where there is something where like, we shouldn't be disobeying uh, God's like, will to, to protect life. That's not the lie. Let's not kid ourselves. That's not the lying that we tend to do. I don't think any one of us will have been in a situation like that where we've told a lie in order to save somebody's life. We're telling lies to save our own reputation or our own sort of, um, I don't know, status. 
We're telling selfish lies. Like, tell as many selfless lies to protect li uh, lives as you want. That wasn't in my notes. I may disagree with myself later on in that sentence. What I mean is, we're not usually in this situation. The lying that we do is not like this. So I don't think we should be looking at this. Oh, there's a lie and that seems to be all right. It's unclear whether they flat out lied or whether they sort of engineered the situation, but certainly they disobeyed the order. That is what we can, what we can see clearly. And we're told that God was kind to the midwives. He continued to bless. He blessed the people. He blessed the midwives with their own families. And what happens? Well, Pharaoh doesn't think, oh, look, I've tried slavery. I've tried wiping it. Like, it's not working. We're going to have to... Like, he just continues to double down on his plan to sort of wipe the people out. So now he's not relying on the midwives. He's just instructing his people, throw all baby boys into the Nile. So that's the situation. We've got to the end of that chapter. There's a significant event in the next chapter about uh, baby boys getting thrown into the Nile, um, but I'll let either Ben or Scott, whoever's speaking next week, uh, talk about that. I've just got three, um, three points that I want to make, three things that I think is helpful for us um, from this first chapter of Exodus. And unusually for me, they've got sort of titles that, I don't know, sort of go together. So it's two kings, two fears, one plan. That's as close as I'm ever going to get to like a sort of Word Alive or conference, uh, Keswick Conference type outline. Um, normally I'm just sort of waffling. So two kings, two fears, one plan. There's two kings in this um, chapter. One is obvious, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. The other one is God, the king of kings. Now God's fairly anonymous in this chapter in terms of direct things. Pharaoh says and does a lot. He's given orders. He's coming up with plans. He's looking at this. He's saying, right, this doesn't work. We'll do that. He's bossing people around. He's threatening people. He's oppressing people. He's killing people. God doesn't say anything directly in this chapter. And the only thing that we are told explicitly that he did is to be kind to the midwives. Like, it's obvious that the people are, are, are being fruitful and multiplying because of God's blessing. But that's the only thing that we're told explicitly that he did is that he was, he was kind to the midwives. This chapter really sets up a theme that's going to develop through the first part of this book, which is Pharaoh setting himself up in opposition to God, battling against God. There's this battle between Pharaoh and God that we're going to see play out over these next chapters. Now, at the time, Pharaoh would have seemed like the most unimaginably, like, unimaginably powerful person. He can boss people around. He can do this. Right? We can enslave this entire nation. He's the most powerful person there. But everything he does in this chapter fails. Not because he lacks earthly power, but because he's setting himself up against the king of kings. It's no contest. There's no, there's no contest there. Any rulers or authorities or kings are only there because God allows it. Their power only exists because God permits them to breathe. Any sort of king going up against the king is ridiculous. Like, but why does it keep happening? That's what Adam and Eve did. They're given the job of ruling and, and um, yeah, just ruling like God's earth and, and looking after it. But they're underneath God's authority. But what happens? Well, they see the opportunity to potentially become like God, and they want to climb up onto God's throne. They want to try and become their own king. It doesn't work. You can't, a king can't go up against the king. People have done the same ever since. Pharaoh does it here. There's another king later on called Nebuchadnezzar who does it when he gets a big statue of himself and wants people to bow down and worship it. 
Roman Caesars started doing it when they started uh, telling people to, to call them gods. None of them are anywhere close to God. It's like an ant standing at the foot of Mount Everest. It's, it's no contest. Why do they keep doing it? It just seems daft. But then it's equally daft. Why do I keep doing it? When I know what God says, but I think, like, I think I know better. Or when I get frustrated with God because he hasn't done the way, think something the way I think it should be done. Or when I get mad because God hasn't answered me prayers, but what I mean is he hasn't answered like, the plans that I want him to follow. Seems daft when Pharaoh's doing it. It's just as daft when I'm doing it or when you're doing it. We think we want to be kings. What we actually need is a good king, the king of kings, the king who loves us. A king who always knows what's best for us and always does what's best for us. What we need is a king who'd be willing to step down off his throne and serve us, to wash our feet, to die for us so that we can be welcomed into the royal feast. I said there's two kings here, but there's really only one king. There's one, there's one king that gets all the, the attention here. He's doing all the stuff. But there's only one king. The king of kings, God. Any other kings, Pharaoh, me, you, which like we're wearing, like, it's like a, a kid putting on a plastic toy crown. No one can stand against God the king. I wouldn't want to stand against God the king when you step back and stand about. He's good. He loves us. He forgives us. He welcomes us in. That's the sort of king we've got. That's great news. That's the two kings. Two fears. Now, this fear is mentioned a bit in here. There's two kinds of fear. Pharaoh is fearful of what might happen if the Israelites decide to join his enemy. He's fearful of like, his security and the security of his country. It's fear of man. Like, What's going to happen if these people get so strong and, and turn against us? Now, the midwives surely had that fear of man as well because they're dragged in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful person around. They've been disobeying him. He's given them a direct order. He's going to be furious about it. They would have been going in there fearful for their lives. Like, it's a miracle, really, that they, didn't, they came out of that alive. They're under really significant pressure. We just read it as like a little story. But the amount of pressure that they were under to carry out Pharaoh's order, like they're risking their lives to save the, the lives of these babies. And why did they save the lives of the babies? Because they said, we're told that they feared God. They feared God more than they feared man, more than they feared Pharaoh. And that led to righteous behavior, doing the right thing. It led to blessing for God, from God for them and for everybody else. Now, the fear of God can sometimes be a bit of a, a confusing phrase. Like, what do we mean to say fear God? Because the most frequent command in the Bible is to not be afraid. But the Bible also says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, there's definitely a wrong type of fear before God. Um, the sort of terror, like terrified, being afraid, like just worried that you can't come before him because you failed this week. That's not the type of fear that... Um, that is described here as the, um, the fear of the Lord that the midwives had, or the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. There's a good type of fear of God. It's not being terrified or being afraid like that. It's holding God in his proper place. It's recognizing the holiness of God, how glorious, how powerful, how perfect he is. It's recognizing that, that, that king thing that we talked about earlier on, that we're not kings, that like, there's one king, and we're just coming in humbly. It's a humble approach to God. It's approaching him with reverence and awe, not with arrogance or pride. 
the good fear of God understands that God is God and we are not. And then it leads us to do the right thing no matter what the consequences. A fear of man is like really, really powerful. We call it peer pressure, like in, in sort of common language. Now, I spend most of my days every day at work with teenagers, and peer pressure is a powerful, powerful force. There's been many, many times where I'm trying to uh, explain to uh, somebody why their behavior is going to end badly, um, but you just can't get through to them because the peer pressure is so strong. And there's bad news for us all. We don't grow out of it. We just become more skillful at sort of keeping it um, well hidden. We just convince ourselves that, oh, I'm an, I'm an individual. I don't follow the crowd. But we, we do. Peer pressure is exactly the same for us as it is for uh, children and teenagers. That's fear of man. It makes us just nod and, and smile when we disagree because we don't want to be disliked. It makes us keep our mouth shut about Jesus because we're worried that people might mock us. Fear of man makes it difficult to speak out when you think it's not a good idea to buy a fridge for wine time Friday in the national lockdown. Like, it's why people don't speak out against things. Well, I know, it's funny. I thought it was funny, but it is, tr it is true. Like, that was one of the things. That I haven't read the Sue Gray report in detail. Well done if you have. But one of the things that I noticed that she put in was that she didn't think that junior members of staff should be getting punished when their seniors were at the same party. Because it may well be that there was plenty of people there thinking, I don't think this is right, but my boss is going, and, I don't, and so I'm going. That's just another example of um, peer pressure. Fear of man, peer pressure makes us things, do things that we never thought we would do. Like fear of man there for Pharaoh makes him start ordering the slaughter of babies because he's fearful that if this happens, like if this goes wrong and the people turn against us, this is what's going to happen. Fear of man is ultimately selfish. It's willing to do anything to protect our reputation or self, uh, status. Whereas fear of God puts ourselves and others in the rightful place. If fear of God freezes to do the right thing, even if it's unpopular. Fear of God allows us to stand up to evil, even if it's going to cost us. It enables us to lay down our pride, our reputation and status for the sake of others. And that's exactly what the midwives did here. They put themselves at great personal risk because they knew that it was the right thing to do to protect these children. Pharaoh was the most significant person alive at that time. The midwives were insignificant. But when we're reading this book today, we're not even told what Pharaoh's name is. Whereas these women are dignified with the recording of their names and with kindness from God. It's the only thing God does directly in this chapter is he shows kindness to these two women. This like seemingly important Pharaoh who feared man and set himself up against God, now we read about as a bit of a pathetic character of history. Where these women who would have been known to very few people at the time, so insignificant, these women who feared God now stand out to us as brave, fearless women who protected the lives of those who couldn't protect themselves. Now, we battle fear of man in all sorts of ways every day. And the solution is to fear God. Not that we're terrified of God, but that we live our lives in the knowledge of who he is. And that frees us up to do the right thing and follow him. 
Now this, when I heard this just earlier this week, Lisa told me this story. I absolutely loved it. So if you don't like it, just maybe keep that to yourself later on. Like she was halfway through telling me that we were eating our meal and I slammed my fist down on the table. I was like, yes, this is so good. Now, maybe I should have said that after the story. I've just thought. Anyway, right. This is about Hugh Latimer, who was um, a bishop in the 1500s. And he was a key figure um, in the sort of English Reformation, uh, speaking out against false teaching, speaking out against corruption in the church and had a real commitment to the Bible and um, being faithful to what the Bible said. Now, he had been critical of Henry VIII, which you don't have to be an expert on history to know that Henry VIII had a bit of a dodgy personal life, and he'd spoken against that. The idea that he was just trying to move from marriage to marriage, he'd spoken out against that. And then it came to happen that he was preaching in front of Henry VIII on Henry VIII's birthday. And it was customary for the preacher to present a gift to the king on his birthday. <laughs> this is brilliant. This. So, so he, had, uh, he presented him with an embroidered handkerchief. Yeah, nice gift. Um, he'd had embroidered on it um, the Hebrews 13 verse 4. Not just the, um, the verse reference, but the full verse which says... Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That's what he presented to the king. I just think that's hilarious. He'd gone to the trouble of having that. It's not like, oh, you just send it off to somebody on eBay who embroiders it to you. That would have been a lot of trouble at the time to have that embroidered onto a handkerchief that you're going to present to the king on his birthday. I just think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, Henry VIII didn't think it was absolutely brilliant, as you can, uh, as you can imagine. Hugh Latimer then went on to, to preach a sermon about the sin of lust. So Henry VIII wasn't happy, and he said... The next time you preach, you need to apologize. That was the, the ultimatum. So next Sunday, he got up and he said, he, he started off by sort of addressing himself publicly. And he said, I'll just read out exactly what he said. He says, Hugh Latimer, you are this day to preach before the high and mighty Henry, King of Great Britain and France. If you say one single word that displeases his majesty, he will take your head off. Therefore, mind what you say. That's fear of man. But then he said, Hugh Latimer, you are this day to preach before the Lord God Almighty. He was able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so tell the king the truth outright. And he then went on to preach um, biblical truth. He didn't bow to the king. I just think that's absolutely brilliant. I absolutely love that story. The king actually didn't take his head off. Um, but Latimer was later martyred under the, the rule of Mary. He, didn't, he never wavered from his commitment to the Bible, and he did ultimately lose his life for it. I just absolutely love the, the bravery in that story. You can imagine the same thing for the midwives. They're going to get dragged before Pharaoh because they haven't carried out his order to get rid of the baby boys. And they're thinking, look, we're going to be standing before the great Pharaoh who will have us killed if, we, if we've disobeyed. But then they're also thinking, we're standing before the God of the universe who's called us to protect life, who empowers us to protect life, not take it. And so I'm sure they went in there trembling, but they knew that they were serving God, not Pharaoh. The same is true for, for me and you. We're standing before others who may mock, they may argue, they may attack. But we're also standing before the Lord God Almighty who calls us and empowers us to live like Jesus. That's the two fears, fear of man and fear of God. You'll see two kings, two fears, and then finally one plan. Pharaoh's got all sorts of plans here. He comes up with one plan after another, all failing. But there's, all, there's really only one plan actually 
being carried out, and that's God's. It's part of his eternal plan. This is, Exodus is not a standalone story. Um, in the original language, it actually begins, the, the chapter begins, the book begins with the word and. It's, it's cut out of our um, English translation. That bit about the people going down from um, Jacob's family going to Egypt is a direct quote from uh, Genesis. I think it's chapter 46. They're being fruitful and multiplying, echoes the command given to Adam and Eve, and then the blessing promised to Abraham. This is a continuation of God's plan. Nothing can stop God's plan going forward. Like when, it was, when the plan was given to Abraham, it seemed like the, the barrier was this old couple who couldn't have children. That wasn't a barrier to God's plan. The family dispute and Joseph being sold into slavery, that wasn't a, 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 a barrier to God's plan. This famine that was wiping people out, that wasn't a barrier to God's plan. We've got the people multiplying and filling the land, so then slavery, that's not a barrier to God's plan. They keep on multiplying. Plan to wipe out the babies, that doesn't stop it. Nothing's going to stop God's plan here, nothing's going to stop God's plan now. Whatever comes against it, it continues. The people there were in a desperate situation. I don't want to skim past how they felt, like being enslaved, um, but having this threat of their, their baby boys being killed, like it would have felt like God's plan's gone off the rails here. It, like it's, there's nothing God can do. But spoiler, God brings them out of slavery. That's the book of Exodus. Spoiler, Abraham, like the promised seed of Abraham does bring uh, blessing to the whole earth. A spoiler, at the end of history, God's plan is fulfilled. Nothing can stand against God's plan. We might be like the people thinking, oh, man, this is, this is it now. God's plan's failed here, yeah, or it's not working for me. I'm in such a desperate situation. And we can read the story of the Exodus and remember that nothing, nothing can stand in the way of God's plans for his people, and that includes me and you. The people living through this, the people enslaved at this time, didn't have the Exodus story to look back on. They had some other things they could look back on. They didn't have the Exodus story to look back on. They were living it. But then for thousands of years up until now, people have then retold this story precisely because it gives confidence in God's plans and purposes throughout history. This is what God did in our past. Remember when God brought us out of slavery in Egypt? They retell it over and over again because it gives confidence that God's plans are still working. Now, I think that's brilliant for Jewish people to look back on that. I think it's even better for Christians because we're looking back on Exodus. It's a brilliant event, but also the points towards a greater Exodus that Jesus carried out. We can take comfort and confidence from this Exodus story, but there's even more in it for us. Because we look, we look also to, to another child who was born in similar circumstances where a king was trying to wipe out all the baby boys. And then we see Jesus faithfully carrying out the Father's work. As the King of Kings, he laid down his throne and humbled himself to become like us and to serve us. In the midst of great pressure from people and persecution, he didn't fear man, but he willingly suffered persecution and death on our behalf. Why did he do that? Because it was a fulfillment of that one plan that's been going on, God's plan that's been going on throughout eternity, weaving through history and has never failed. We're enslaved to sin, rebellion against God. We're enslaved to it. We can't, we can't get out of it ourselves in our own power. 
And Jesus brings about our exodus, our bringing out, our bringing out of slavery. His life, death, and resurrection means that we're free from slavery to sin. We're free to joyfully serve the perfect, good, loving king. We're free from the need to live consumed by the fear of man. We're free with the knowledge that his plans and purposes never fail. Let's pray.